visiting with us today. We, we're glad that you're here. You're so welcome, and we know that God is going to just encourage you and share something with you that will help you to see Jesus a little bit more clearly, which is really what we're all about here at Anchor Church. We want to help people see and know Jesus and understand His love and understand your righteousness in Him and let it inform your identity and let it uh, uh, inspire you and encourage you to rely on Him in every moment of your life. And that's really what um, the gospel is about, and it's really what Romans is about, and what our church is about. And so if you're visiting, we're doing this uh, series. We're fairly new. We're only doing our third message today in the series um, in the letter to the Romans written by Paul. And why we love this letter is because of how powerfully it expresses the message of what the entire Bible is about what the entire Bible is about. And, and people have different ideas about what the Bible is about. Some people say it's a manual for life. And, uh, you know, it gives you the, 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 the steps that you're supposed to take um, in order to live life correctly. And, and some people say it's like a map book or a guidebook. Uh, in fact, when I drive my kids home from school, because my Bible's always with me, it's in the car, uh, my kids are always turning up. They discovered that there are maps in the back. Um, and so they are directing me. My twin boys uh, are directing me from the back of the car um, using the maps of Israel, and somehow we get home. Um, so so it, it, it's, it's a lot more, though, than just some guidelines. It's a lot more, though, than just a moral understanding or a moral code. This is an expression of something that has been done. That's why it's called the good news, because news isn't an instruction. News is it's, it's information about something that has already happened. And that's what this Bible is telling us. It's telling us what God has already done for us so that we can believe in it and thereby live in it. And, um, and so we love how uh, the, the, the book of Romans is able to capture everything that Scripture tells us about the gospel, everything that Scripture tells us about God's goodness, and express it very, um, very effectively and very systematically for us so that we can understand it. And uh, this just affects our lives and and we begin to journey with God. And so we ended off last week in, uh, in, in Romans 1 verse 15. I'm going to go to verse 16 today. And I might include a little bit more reading today because there's this thought that spans across chapter 2 and 3. Um, and we'll see how far we get. But there's this real general thought that Paul uses two chapters to express. And even if I, if I just read through it and then highlight a few bits, um, I hope that you've got your Bibles here and, and that you're able to track with us and bring a notebook so you can make some notes um, or you can just make your notes, your notes directly in your Bible itself. Um, but I'm going to start off with Romans 1 verse 16 to 17, just these first two verses. And, uh, and Paul writes here and he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's now done his introduction. He's, he's greeted Rome. He's told, he's told this church in Rome what he's all about. And, and he shared a few thoughts. And he said, grace and peace to you. And now he goes, he goes straight into this, this expression of the gospel. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, to all people. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so I want to share a message with you this morning called Righteousness Revealed. Righteousness Revealed. And, and I really want to talk to you 
about what righteousness is, because this is, is a major, major theme um, in the Bible and in the book of Romans, where Paul wants us to understand what it means to be right with God. So I'm going to talk a little bit about righteousness today, and, uh, and how we, if we're just honest for a moment, as uh, I say that as if we're going to be honest, and then we're going to go back to being dishonest, um, but if we allow ourselves to be honest with ourselves for a moment, um, we can honestly say that we are sinful people, that we are flawed people, that we are imperfect people, that we don't do the things, even if we haven't read about it in the Bible, just that we decided for ourselves. Have you ever decided for yourselves you were going to be better at doing something morally, and then you didn't even stick to your own standards, never mind God's standards, right? We've all failed in, in being moral and being good and being righteous, and so how do we, as people that are sinful and flawed and imperfect, people who've rebelled against God and rejected the truth of Him in our minds so often. How can, we come to, how can we come to a place where we can stand before God completely blameless, completely holy in His sight, perfectly righteous before Him, perfectly justified before Him? How can we as sinful people stand justified in the eyes of God. To be justified means it's just as if, just always remember when you hear justified, just as if you had never sinned. How can we stand before God with all the things we've done wrong, with all the things we do wrong? How is it that we as people get to stand before God completely blameless and holy as if we'd never sinned in His sight? And the word Justified and righteous actually come from the same Greek word. It's, it's very much uh, the same idea, to be justified, to be made right uh, before God. And that's what righteousness really is. It means to be right with God. According to all of His, His, His standards and His holy requirements and His righteousness, we can stand and go, yes, we've, we've met that standard. We can stand before God in that way. It means to be justified in His presence. So I'm going to go into this, speak a little bit on, on uh, Romans 1, and, uh, and look at this idea of how Paul uses these first few chapters to tell us how we get to be right with God. He reveals righteousness to us. Um, so let's just go ahead and pray together this morning, and then we'll get stuck into this. Father, we thank you so much that right now, God, that righteousness can be revealed to us that we can come to understand our own lives in the light of the cross, in the light of all that you've done for us, and our own ability to stand before you, to worship you, to, to enjoy your presence, to speak to you, to hear your voice. How is it, God, that we as sinful people get to be able to do this, Lord? And we thank you, God, that this morning you will speak to our hearts and encourage us in our faith to understand the basis upon which we get to know you and walk with you. And we give you all the glory just for how you're moving in our church, how you're speaking to our hearts, and how you're delivering us, Lord God, from all things that, 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 that take us from your presence and that take us uh, from an understanding of your grace. We give you all the glory this morning. We love you, and we thank you that you love us. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen. Amen. So um, a few days ago, I caught myself thinking about game shows, okay? <laughs> How many of you enjoy watching a good game show? There's like one person. Yeah, I kind of watch a game show. Um, and, and I, but I was thinking more about the game shows that I used to watch 
when I was growing up. Because when I was growing up, game shows were a big thing. I don't know if they're as much of a big thing these days. But back then, game shows were the absolute best. And they were always kind of lighthearted and fun. They normally involved some questions or you had to come up with an answer for something. You had, it involved some thinking or problem solving or, or, or whatever. And, and then you could, you could win um, some money off the back of that. And it was just a lot of good f- kind of fun um, you know, watching game shows growing up. And I realized how um, just extreme and a little bit savage our game shows have become today. Have you kind of noticed how game shows have evolved into like incredibly extreme kind of scenarios where you're either being voted off of an island by a group of people who now hate your guts or uh, being scarred emotionally because you didn't receive a rose from that guy that you were in love with, um, or you're like forced to do life-threatening things, you know, be submerged in water for, you know, an untold period of time, or, or to jump off of high things, or to eat living bugs and creatures uh, in the name of entertainment. And, and so I thought, what, what happened to our world that we went from like answering questions to literally risking our lives in order to make a good game show? Um, but the game show's that I watched growing up were a lot safer than that and actually just, just great. And, um, how many of you remember Telefun Quiz? Come on, Telefun Quiz. We'll be back in a whiz on Telefun Quiz. Um, they, they were Telefun Quiz, if you were born after the 80s, you just have to go and watch a, some YouTube videos on it. It was just the best. You had to answer questions kind of in a rapid fire, and if you answered the question correctly, you could pick a telly. And then that telly would have um, some money on it, normally like 100 rand, and people are like, yes! These days we're like, what, so I can pay parking? Um, <laughs> like, and, uh, and so you would have to answer these questions unless you hit a booby trap and and uh, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. They had these two rows of TVs, still square TVs, four by three, and uh, you'd, have to, you'd have to pick one of those. And, and then there was another one called Treasure Hunt. How many of you remember Treasure Hunt? So Treasure Hunt was done where you would get a map, and there were clues that you had to decipher, and then you would be on the phone, and you would have to speak to um, a presenter, and it was a guy called Scott Scott and Melanie Walker, and they would be in a helicopter. Okay, so it gets pretty cool. So they would be in a helicopter, and they, there were no cell phones, so the only way you could communicate with them was like through a satellite pack strapped to their backs and big kind of earphones, and they would run around, and you would direct them to where these clues are leading you, and then they would end up arriving at the right spot, and uh, you would win prizes off the back of that. So you'd have like, people jumping out of, out of, out of helicopter, ho- helicopters in like full Lycra bodysuits, just like running. It was amazing. Uh, the 80s were a fun time. And, um, and so these are the kinds of game shows um, that I remember growing up. And one of the things that you would find often in game shows is once you had selected an answer correctly or, or, or once you had won the prize, you would often be given an option between two or more different boxes or doors or, or opportunities um, that would determine what you would win. And we would always hope because we knew that every week there was a car that somebody could win if they just selected the right door. And so we'd be like, please let it be the car, please let it be the car, please let it be, be the car. And they'd be like, I choose door number three. And then it's like, oh, you want a washing machine. Um, and, and that's kind of uh, how the game shows worked. And some of you are like, yeah, yeah, no, I don't want to watch that. Um, but yeah, you could win behind the door. You could win anything from a washing machine to a car to a can of soup, depending on whether it was your day or not. 
And, um, and I've actually got two doors. So I want to just set something up. If I can ask the guys to just come up real quick. Um, and they're just going to set up this idea of two doors and two options uh, that Paul actually puts before us, all right? So uh, it's not quite a game show, but the concept remains the same in that there are two options, and we get to choose which one we'd put our faith in and which one we're going to walk through. And so we've got door number one over here, um, brought to you by the beards. Um, and door number two on this side. So you've got two doors that, that Paul, thanks guys, uh, essentially puts before us in these chapters in Romans. He says, he says, the righteousness of God has been revealed and you've got to choose how you're going to be made righteous. You've got to choose how you're going to be made righteous. Door number one is through the gospel, which he, which he really wants you to pick. He's really starting off the book by saying, please pick door number one. Please understand what door number one is. Please walk through this door. Please understand what you'll have through the gospel. And door number two is really morality. It's really an observance of a strict moral code. It's really trying to meet the standards of God's righteousness um, and, and the standards of His character and the holy standards of His law um, by your abilities and your own efforts. And so he goes, you've got door number one and door number two, and he, he gives us these options in these following verses. And I'm going to refer back to these again and again and look at what we find um, from the different doors and what, we've, what we are able to experience in each door, which is essentially what Paul is showing us. We tend to believe as Christians that this is the correct door. You know when you just get a feeling about a door? You, you, kind of, you get an option, you're like, mm, gut feel is it must be that one. And when I tell you how is it that we get to stand before God righteous, holy, blameless in His sight, most people's answer, the, the, almost the common sense answer, is by being good, right? If you ask people, how do you get into heaven? They go, well, through the door of goodness. You've got to be a good person. That's why everybody thinks they're going to heaven. Because they, they don't think about the bad parts of their lives when they think about this door. They only think about the good parts. So they don't go, yeah, you know, I've lied, I've, I've cheated, I've stolen, you know, I've, I've, I've betrayed, I've hurt, I've, I've been dishonest with myself, I've, I've done things that I clearly shouldn't have done. They just think, oh, but I gave my sandwich away last week, and that was a good thing, so surely I'm in here. Surely that, that qualifies me. As long as your good works kind of outweigh your bad ones, you can walk through this door. And so the world's perception of Christianity is that it's about being good enough for God. This is why it's so hard when you're sharing your faith with people. One of the reasons why they reject it is because they go, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to walk through the door and be accepted. I'm not good enough to come to your church. If you knew what I did last weekend, or if you knew what I did last night, or if you knew, knew what was going on in my heart, if you knew the thoughts that I have so regularly, you wouldn't invite me to your church because I'm not good enough to walk through that door. And so people tend to look at morality and say that this is probably how we are made right with God. But Paul is so passionate about helping us to understand what this means that he can't even help himself. From the first verse, from, from the first point of this argument, which is the longest theological argument in the entire Bible, in the entire New Testament, which spans from 1 verse 15 all the way to verse 12, uh, to chapter 12, he is telling us that this is the right door. This is how he starts. Pick door number one. 
is almost what Paul is saying. And um, he gets into it straight after his intro in uh, verse 1 and, and verse, verse uh, 16 and, and from there onwards. This passionate plea. This is how he starts. He goes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, just to be clear, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He observed the law from his youth. He knew the first five books of the Bible off by heart. He had studied the prophets. He had studied the scriptures. He knew what it meant to be a follower of the law. And in his life, it is a big thing for him to say, I am not for the law, but I am for grace, because for all of his life, he was for the law. He literally counted everything that he had done before as rubbish in order that he may lay a hold of that for which Christ laid a hold of him, in order that he may know Christ and be found in him having a righteousness that's not of his own, but that's of Christ, of faith. And so Paul goes, I'm not ashamed to say that I am proudly door number one. That's me, door number one, loud and proud. I want you to know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. He's saying it's the right door for us to be saved. In the gospel, think about this for a moment. The people, people see um, grace and gospel and, and these things as, as soft thoughts that you have before you become a mature Christian. And then it's all hard thoughts, and then it's all, and then it's all commitment and, 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 and fire and, and all those kinds of things, discipline that you're supposed to have. But what Paul says is that this is how the power of God is revealed in your life. This is the power to be saved. This is the power to walk in righteousness. This reveals God's power. The gospel reveals God's power, whereas the law reveals our weakness. The law reveals how weak we are so that the gospel can reveal what God did on our behalf. That's essentially what the cross did. That's essentially what Jesus did on the cross. The cross is the statement that God saves us without us having done a single religious thing in order to be saved. He came down. He carried the cross. He died on it. And that is how we are made right with God. So it's the power of God revealed. I find it, this is just a basic, basic concept um, in Scripture. It's, it's the starting point of the gospel, is that we're made righteous by, by grace um, through faith. And it's amazing then that Christians are always looking for the right door to reveal the power of God. Have you, have you noticed how Christians do this? They're like, well, if you want the power of God in your life, then what you need to do is you need to fast and pray. And I believe in fasting and praying. I believe in what it does, but it never gets separated from this. The problem is we separate fasting and praying. We separate uh, worship from it. We separate uh, association with other believers. We separate all these things out as if they are separate doors to the power of God. And then people say, well, you're not experiencing the power of God in your life because you haven't done enough to open the door. And so Christians are constantly going, okay, maybe it's door number one. Maybe if I pray for five hours a day, then I'll experience the power of God. And so they're getting stuck into it, stuck into it, saying, but why is the miracle not coming? Why is the breakthrough not there? Why is the revival not happening? Then they go, I must have missed something else. Then they go to door number two and they try something else, being uh, practicing severe bodily dis discipline. 
Colossians 2, Paul speaks about it there. He talks about asceticism, almost forcing the severe bodily discipline on others. If we were just a committed church, God would move. And so that's the next door, and the next door, and the next door, and the next door. But can I tell you, the power of God doesn't lie behind those doors. It lies behind this door. And for me, where the power of prayer and fasting and discipline and all those things are, is in reminding me how much I need to walk through this door in order to experience the power of God. Prayer leads me back to the same door every single time, to the door of the gospel. But Christians are always looking for how to reveal God's power. And here it is. Paul says, in the gospel, the power of God is revealed. He says, for in it, in the gospel, in the good news, in what Jesus has done, the righteousness of God is revealed. God's righteousness is revealed. That's kind of like uh, when, they, when, when somebody picks a door on a game show and they're like, okay, I'll go with door number one. And the host says, all right, show them what's behind door number one. If you took this door and you opened it up, what would be revealed would be the righteousness of God, what it really is. When we look behind the door of the gospel, the righteousness of, of God is revealed from faith for faith. It comes from faith and it's for, so that you can have more faith. As it's written, the righteous, if we are going to be righteous, we've got to live by faith. Live by our trust in what Jesus has done. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed and we can live in it. And Paul is saying, this is the right door. This is how you get to be right with God. But then Paul uses chapter two and three of the book of Romans to say, let's just consider this door for a moment, right? Like I've already told you which is the right door and how you get to be right, made right with God. But in case you're still kind of, mm, maybe the gospel just, just outweighs the other door or maybe it's kind of both, Maybe I need to have the gospel, but then I've also got to uh, follow the law, because otherwise, and he goes, okay, let's take a brief excursion to what lies behind door number two. Let's take a brief excursion behind what lies behind the law and lies behind morality. And let me be clear to say this, morality is from God, morality is of God, God himself is moral, he's righteous. He's holy, he's true, right? So there's nothing wrong with morality or with the law. The law is holy, we celebrate the law, the law is good. What's not good is us and our ability to fulfill it. And if so, if something is good, like for example, let's say marriage is good. Marriage is a good thing, but it's also a commitment that you make. And from the moment you commit to be married, if you're not able to stay faithful, to you, marriage will become a very bad thing. It's a good thing, but because of your inability to adhere to what it requires, it becomes a curse to your life because you find yourself in sin as a result of your inability to maintain your commitment. Does it make sense? All right, I hope that you're writing this stuff down and that it's sinking in. Stop me if I'm going too fast. Um, but, but Paul is, is saying that we agree that the law is good, but I am a slave sold to sin. And so what the thing that was supposed to bring me life, Paul says, and we'll cover this later on in Romans, actually brought me death. The thing that was supposed to, that I thought would save me, actually killed me because I wasn't good enough 
to do what it requires. And so he goes here, in, in, and we'll start reading from, from Romans 1 verse 18. So he skips from going, the gospel is how righteousness is revealed. And then he goes to the other door. He says, what do we find behind the other door? He says, for the wrath of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. The wrath of God is revealed. Two different things being re- revealed. From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They are without excuse. In other words, uh, what we, we know that God exists. We know that He exists in our hearts because we can see all that has been created around us and within us. We, we know our own thoughts and feelings. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, Claiming to be wise, they became, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. There's, a, there's an element of choice here in that when we choose to reject God in our minds, we get given up to our own devices and we end up eating the fruit of our own sinfulness in this life and we get given over to dishonorable passions. And the Bible goes on in Romans there, he describes uh, what some of those dishonorable passions look like in two separate parts of, of the rest of Romans chapter number one. But here he tells us that the wrath of God is revealed. Earlier, he said that the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness is revealed. So there is wrath, which is righteous wrath. So God isn't, isn't mean, he isn't evil, he isn't, he, he isn't picky, he, isn't, uh, uh, he doesn't show uh, partiality partiality in, in, in um, judging. He's a righteous judge. The same way that if, one, if somebody had committed a crime against you and there was clear evidence that they had committed their crime and you went into a court and you stood before a judge, if there was evidence that the person was guilty and the judge said, it's okay, you can just go, he would be an unrighteous judge, correct? We would call that judge a bad judge. Because God is righteous, there is judgment against unrighteousness. There is judgment against sin. And in the law, it's revealed. Against those who practice unrighteousness, and listen to this, I love how it says this, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So it's not like people who do bad things or live in unrighteousness don't know that what they're doing is wrong. Come on, even if nobody ever taught you there have been times when my kids who have never been to a sin seminar or, you know, uh, some sort of a morality conference, I didn't have to teach them these things. They did certain things like hit their brother or take something that didn't belong to them, and they immediately start lying about it because they know in their hearts it's wrong. 
And so when we do things wrong, in our unrighteousness, what we do is we begin to, because we know that we're guilty, suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. We have to push it down. We have to force it down. And so in order to select this door, people have to suppress the truth within them. They need to convince themselves. It says that what we can know about God and His eternal power and divine nature has clearly been perceived. So it's not like people who, who do bad things and who say, no, I just, I just, I believe that, you know, going out and taking what you can get from this life and, 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 and doing whatever makes me feel good, no matter how it might hurt somebody else or whatever. It's not like people who say that thing, those things have absolutely no idea that God exists. They all know. You see, what raises the question about God's existence is not the Bible, first and foremost. The Bible was written to answer the question that was already being asked for centuries. It's not the church. It's your own existence. If you just for a moment stood and looked at your own life and you'd say to yourself, why am I here? In fact, why is anything here rather than nothing? Why do I exist? And if you start looking at yourself and asking the question, why do I exist? Why do I exist with the thoughts and with the feelings and with the desires that I have, including a desire for meaning and for purpose and for love and for spiritual fulfillment. Why do I have these feelings within me? As C.S. Lewis said, if, if life had no meaning, we should never have found out that it had no meaning. We should have just been like, like I don't think that there's like deer in, you know, in the felt. Well, there isn't because that two different continents, but... but, but you can't have like a buck out in the felt like a kudu and he's like chewing grass and then he thinks up and he goes, what is the meaning of my life? <laughs> right? So if we were just animals, just the product of evolution, why are we obsessed with meaning and with purpose and with love and with morality? I don't know if there's ever a lion like hunting, you know, a buffalo going, I don't know if, you know, I feel sorry for this guy. You know, maybe I should pick the weak ones and let the strong ones live, you know. It's not like a lion has any form of morality. He just eats what's in front of him because it's survival. But why do we have this intense feeling about morality? Even people who say they can't believe in God because if God was good, why would he allow this to happen? Why would he allow suffering? Why would he allow war? Why would he allow bad things to happen in this world. And it's going, okay, wait a minute. So you're referring to some sort of a moral code that you know in your heart. How do you know what bad is unless you have some idea of what it means to be good? If you're judging God as not being as good as you want him to be in certain situations, then what standard are you measuring that against? Because if evolution is how we came about, then the universe is essentially amoral. It doesn't, we decide what's good and bad. But all of us instinctively have this compass, the law is written on our hearts, and it tells us that certain things are good and certain things are bad. Certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And so people who do things that aren't right, that live in unrighteousness, they find themselves helpless to overcome what they know in their own hearts is wrong. And so the scripture says they sear their own conscience by suppressing the truth. You know what that means, that word sear? It's like when, you, when, you, when, you burnt, when you've burnt your hand or you've burnt your finger so much that it has no feeling left. The feeling has been burnt out of it. The nerves are, are, are all burnt out. 
And so it's completely numb. And so what the scripture says, the more we suppress the truth and suppress the truth and suppress the truth in our unrighteousness and in, and in our dishonesty, what happens is, is that we, became, we become numb to what's right and what's wrong. We're able to lie to ourselves more effectively. This is what happens when we suppress the truth. He says, for although they knew God, they knew Him, they did not honor Him as God. They did not give thanks to Him. When we stand on a Sunday and we worship and we give thanks to God, what we're doing is we're recognizing who we are, where we come from, and why we're alive. It's a recognition of our life's purpose when we begin to worship. But they didn't give thanks to Him. And so by rejecting God in their minds, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise now, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Paul is saying that the rejection of God in our minds almost leads us into a kind of subhuman state. Have you ever, have you ever wondered, I, I remember Jack Johnson has this song that says, why don't the newscasters cry when they're reading the news? Right? Like if you hear about people who died and you hear about tragedies that have happened in people's lives, and why don't those newscasters cry? Why doesn't it affect them anymore? And he's saying we almost move into a subhuman state when we reject the truth of God in our minds, where we're no longer living as fully aware humans. Instead, we become darkened in our minds, ruled by our lusts and evil desires and in our pursuits. This is what happens when you move further and further away from the truth. You get conditioned by this culture of your thinking, this worldview, and your thinking becomes completely warped, completely warped. People would even argue that there, there's no God. That's how warped our thinking would be. Even though we know in our hearts that there's a God, His invisible attributes are clearly visible to us. This is the general revelation of God. We generally know that creation exists. We generally have a moral compass in our hearts. We generally know that there must be a God in our hearts. But our thinking becomes warped the more we reject God. Romans 1.28, Paul says, And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. The Greek is almost a play on words here where it says that having rejected God in their minds, God gave them over to a rejected mind. He gave them over to that way of thinking. Debased means no more solid basis on which you can build your life to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, having rejected God. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, to be judged in sin, they not only do them, but they also give approval to others who practice them. And isn't that so true of our world? Isn't it so true? Like people who go out and do things that are wrong, like they want someone else to do it wrong with them, right? They would encourage us, they almost become evangelists of evil, where they just want to encourage other people. Hey, I don't want to go get drunk by myself and, and, and wreck my life by myself. I don't want to do drugs by myself. I don't want to, I, I want to, I, I don't want to even go rob a place by myself. I need, need somebody to look out. So, so they would draw other people in to their situation and give approval to others who do things that are wrong. 
They reject this worldview that God is our creator and has put certain things in place. And they start to inspire others to rebel against God. And so when your mind is in that state, when you've rejected God, you can honestly no longer even trust your own thinking. This is what C.S. Lewis says, and I'm just going to read this quote to you. He says, supposing there was no intelligence behind the universe, no creative mind. In that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. It's merely that when atoms inside my skull happen for physical or chemical reasons to arrange themselves in a certain way, this gives me as a byproduct the sensation I call thought. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? It's like upsetting a milk jug and hoping that the way it splashes itself will give you a map of London. But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism. And therefore, I have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe God, in God, I cannot believe in thought. So I can never use thought to disbelieve in God. You're cutting off the very branch you're sitting on. God gave us the reason, to th the, the ability to think and to reason. And so when you reject Him, you take away your ability to reason because in all, everything is just random. And every thought you have is just a random thought with no meaning attached to it. There's no meaning then. I remember just as a side note, Ravi Zacharias, go watch his videos, he's awesome. He's just one of those you know, Indian guys that's born with an IQ of like 400. And so he goes to the top colleges and universities in the world and people get to ask him questions. And, um, and one day a student stood up and said, um, and just shouted out in the middle of his session, there is no meaning in this life. There's no meaning in this life. And he stood up and responded to it, and he said, you don't believe that. And the guy said, I do believe it. There's no meaning in this life. He says, no, you don't believe it. And he kind of goes back and forth with this guy a couple of times. The guy said, I'm telling you, there is no meaning. And Rabbi Zacharias is like, keeps saying, no, you don't believe that. Because if you, really, if you really believed it, then what you said would have no meaning. And so why did you even get up to say it? Right? And then he just sat down. So we argue about meaning to try and say that there is no meaning. But why would we even argue? So this deep-based mind, it warps our thinking about the world, our perspective. Romans 2 verse 1, Paul then says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. In passing judgment on others, and yes, sometimes, sometimes Christians, there's some things that I could say right now, but I'm, they, they pass judgment. You know what the problem is? In passing judgment, what you prove is, you know what's right and wrong, but then why do you go and practice the same things after having passed judgment on someone? Well, pass judgment on someone, that person's dishonest and then we go and be dishonest. So you prove that you know what's right and wrong, and therefore you're absolutely guilty, because having judged another in righteousness, or about righteousness, you then are unrighteous yourself. He says in verse four, or do you not know, or, sorry, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
In other words, are you just making a mockery of God's patience towards us? The fact that he hasn't judged you yet, and now you're like, oh, I'm fine. God hasn't judged me. I keep doing this stuff, and nothing's happened. Do you take advantage of God's goodness, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to, a, to repentance, which means a changed life? God's goodness leads us to repent. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Saying, yeah, we're kind of guilty. We're kind of guilty because we know what's right and wrong. We prove it by judging others. And if we don't turn to the gospel, the wrath of God will be stored up against us. It'll be stored up against us. I remember um, driving in the car. We were four kids growing up. And uh, I grew up in kind of like what would be a traditional family. I'm very grateful for that traditional Christian family. Um, as a result, um, you know, we didn't get put into timeouts. Uh, we didn't get uh, grounded. We got a hiding, all right? And, um, and when my mom gave us a hiding, it was bad enough, you know, um, that she could only hit so hard. But when my dad got involved, uh, you know, then it was serious. And, and there was a time when we were all driving in the car and my little brother, Nick, the youngest of the four of us, um, he just had a day where he just felt like he wasn't going to take it anymore. And he was probably, I don't even know how old he was, maybe six or seven or whatever it was. And, um, and he, he back chatted my dad on something. And my dad, and my dad said, it's okay. It's okay, Nick. You'll see, you'll see what'll happen when we get home. And he was like, I'm not going to be intimidated. And so Nick was like, I don't care. I don't care what you say. I'm going, and he just carried on and we're going, Nick, you're going to die. Please, please stop. (laughs) We're like fearing for our brother's life. We're like, please don't, don't do that. Uh, Because there's something that will be revealed to him later, which is righteous wrath. And, and so it's very much like this. People are like, well, I don't care. I don't care if there's a God. You know, screw God. Well, who cares what God thinks? I'll do whatever I want. And, and we're going, you don't understand that there is wrath to come. Don't take God's kindness and patience with us now as a license to live any way that you want. Understand what true righteousness is. So this is not, I'm, I don't, I'm trying not to get ahead of myself. But if you pick door number two, If you're going to choose to live according to the law, then what it says is that the wrath of God will be stored up because God is righteous. What it's saying is is that you can never fulfill the entire law. And it says if you break one law, you're guilty of them all. So picking this door means that you either have to live, the only way that you can pick this door and come out alive is if you live a perfect life where you never sin, not even once, not even on one small point, Because the moment you break a law, you've broken them all. And then you're guilty, and you've chosen to, instead of receiving grace, to face the wrath of God by yourself, for yourself. You've chosen to save yourself. And so that's what he says. And so he is pleading with us, pick this door. (laughs) Just pick this one. Put your faith in this one. It says there in in Romans 2, and I'm skipping over little bits, but it says, He will render to each one according to his works. Those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So there's judgment on sinfulness. Romans 2, 21, coming back to what I said earlier, says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? 
You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For circumcision, which was a sign of the covenant with God, indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So the only way we can walk through that door is if we're going to live perfectly. And this is why you have teachers and parents all over the world that say to their kids, don't do what I do, do what I say. <laughs> right? How many of you have ever said that to your kids? Okay, you don't, you don't have to put your hands up. Huh? Why? Because when we tell our kids what to do, we know that in many instances we don't even do what we're telling our kids to do. We know it's right, but we're guilty of the same thing. A true, a true sign that you're right with God is when you obey Him not just in deed, but in your heart, in the intentions of your heart. And what we move into as we go into Romans chapter number three is that Paul says this, he says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. None of us truly obey God in our hearts by nature. None of us have the ability to just adhere to all that God says. He says this as he reads it out. He says, what then? Are the Jews any better off, those who follow the law? No, not at all. I'm reading from verse nine. For we have, all, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. We've all sinned. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the state of mankind, including every single one of us without the grace of God. Don't be deceived. This is what Paul is saying. Hey guys, I want to quickly let you know, you're all lost without the grace of God. You have no chance of walking through door number two. Please don't think you're gonna make it through there. All you're gonna do is store up wrath for yourself. Does that make sense? Because we're not righteous. And then he says, and I'm coming in for a close, that God has made another way. There was no way for us to be made righteous, but God has made another way. In chapter three, after having said that no one is righteous, in verse 19, he says this, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no, listen to this, no human being will be justified, righteous in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Watchman Nee says this, he says, when God gave us the, the law, he knew full well we wouldn't be able to keep it. He was just trying to reveal our unrighteousness to us. So it, it, the law is like the doctor that diagnoses the problem. And that's why God gave the law. I have a great analogy of what happened with my son once, Eli, uh, which just spoke to me so clearly about what the law is. And I've shared this before with some of you, but for those of you that haven't heard it before, um, 
there was once something under the couch, and we have a, kind of a, a long couch, and it's quite heavy, and um, my, my son Eli um, asked me to help him get something out, and I said to him, okay, I'll lift the couch, and then you go in and get whatever it was that we were trying to get out from under the couch, and he said, no, 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 I'm going to lift the couch, Dad, and you get what's under the couch, and I said to him, my boy, you will not be able to lift this couch, it is too heavy for you to lift, and he said, no, it's not too heavy, I can lift it, and I said, no, you cannot lift this couch, I'm telling you, you're not strong enough to lift it, and he said, dad, just let me do this, I can do this, and he was so pumped that he could do it, and I said, and I said to him, and this is essentially what God said to us when he gave the law, okay, try, try lift it, and so he went to the one corner, and he tried to lift it, and he put everything into it. I mean, he's going red in the face. The vein in his neck was popping out. He's trying to lift it, and he, he cannot pick it up even just a little bit. And so he thought, maybe my angle is wrong. And so he went to another one, and instead of going on his knees, he stood on his feet, and he tried to use it, uh, use the, the, another part of his body, use his back to try and lift it. And he, he tried all the different angles, and after he had tried everything in his own strength, he then came to a point where he said, okay, Dad, I can't. You lift it. That's why God gave us the law. We thought we were good. So God said, okay, here you go. Here's the law. Be good. Okay, we're going to be good, God. This week, no lies, no dishonesty, no, you know, no, no bad words, no fighting, no quarreling, no bad thoughts, no, no evil intentions in our heart, no, no, no whatever, greed or selfishness. Okay, wait, God, another week, give me, it's Monday. I'm starting Monday, God. My righteousness starts on Monday. And then we go again, and it's another week. And and God just watches us try to lift the law again and again and again until we go, God, I give up. I cannot uphold your law. And he says, I know. I've created another door for you. I've made another way for you to be right with me without having to uphold the law in your own strength. Romans 3 verse 21, my final scripture this morning. He says, but now. Everybody say, but now. Come on, I want us to say this word because this is a, we should be pumped about this. Because if it wasn't for this, we'd all be lost. Say, but now. This is our hope. This is everything that we could have hoped for. But now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Thank Jesus. Apart from us having to try and be perfectly good and perfectly righteous and and perfectly observe every form of morality, whether it's the written code we find in the Bible or even just our own consciousness that we so often betray, Thank God that we don't have to be made right with God by following rules and laws and all the precepts that we know we're supposed to follow, but thank God the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, separate from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it, it, that was there so that you could fail and walk over to this. This was God's promise all along. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, through faith. Simply by putting your faith in Jesus, you get to walk through this door. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us can't make it through that door. And are justified, 
Remember, that's the same Greek word as righteous. We're justified just as if we had never sinned by His grace as a gift. Flip man, you might have gotten some good gifts on your birthday or during your lifetime, but there's no greater gift than being made righteous, to be justified as a gift by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In other words, God did everything we couldn't do through Jesus. And he upheld the law fully and went to the cross and on the cross satisfied the requirements of the law on our behalf so that we no longer have to try and walk through that door in order to be right with God. We get to be right with God. And guess what happens when you're right with God? Guess what happens when His grace is in your life? You get to live a righteous life. You get to fulfill the moral standards without even trying to fulfill the standards, not because it's something you're trying to do, but because it's something that you now are. You are righteous, so you can be righteous. You are holy, so you can live in holiness because of the grace of God. So what God ultimately does is he lets us open both doors because he knows we're going to go for that one first. We know that's the common sense. Okay, be good. Okay, go be good. And then after having tried very hard to be good and come to a place of despair in our own strength, which is really a great blessing, we're able to walk over and walk through the door of the gospel. We're able to trust in God's grace and become right with him. And the key that opens this door, how do you walk through it? Faith. Faith. Faith in what Jesus has done for you is how you walk through the door of God's grace. That's why when the the disciples asked Jesus, tell us what we must do to do the works of God, he said, believe in him whom God sent. You believe in God, you walk through the door of the gospel, you're made righteous, and you can live a life which looks different. Our right standing with God is a gift that comes through Jesus that we might become the righteousness of God by faith. And this is all so that righteousness would be revealed in you and not against you. The righteousness of God can either be revealed in you or it can be revealed against you. But by God's grace, because of his great love for us, he said there's wrath stored up for us apart from Jesus. But if you'll just put your faith in how God has poured out his wrath on Jesus for you, then you can walk with God completely blameless. I want you to believe this about yourself. I want you to stand in front of the mirror and say, you are completely holy. You are completely blameless. You are completely righteous. Some of us are struggling with that thought right now. Like, no, I don't think I could say that to myself. Practice it this week. Look yourself in the mirror and say, you are the righteousness of God. Not because you've done enough to be good enough, but because your faith is in Jesus. And so his righteousness has been given to us as a gift. That's how we get to walk with Jesus in spite of how sinful we are as humankind. And so Paul uses these first few chapters to really tell us how bad we are 
so that he can reveal to us how good Jesus is. Amen? Amen. So I hope there was a lot in that. And uh, it's just one complete thought that goes through those chapters. So I know that I went through a lot, uh, but I'm really uh, just hoping that as you go on this journey, that you'd go home and reread those chapters. Go from verse, read from chapter one all the way to the end of chapter three this week. Read those three chapters and let God speak to you. And you'll see how God is righteous, but in his righteousness, he has made a way for us to be saved. And this is why the gospel is the power of God and the righteousness of God revealed. Awesome. Let's go ahead and, and pray together today.